This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Tiny bit of housekeeping here. I'm looking at our call board and there are people who are waiting to comment on our last segment. And I'm sorry we're moving on, but tomorrow's free for all Friday. So I hope that those callers will call back tomorrow to talk about the whole thing about stadiums versus restaurants. Uh, but right now we are moving on to another topic and it is a restriction that our audience has been complaining about. And that is the difficulty of getting in-person appointments with doctors. The province's chief medical officer, Dr. Kieran Moore, says those consultations are safe and he is urging doctors to proceed. And what we learned this week is that the reluctance to do that even caused some really bad backups, especially at sick kids hospital emergencies, because parents were being told, take your kid to emergency for some relatively minor ailments. If you have something to say about all this, uh, about a resumption of in-person appointments with your doctor for 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And first, I'd like to bring in Dr. Adam Kassam, President of the Ontario Medical Association. Hello. Good afternoon. So what is your reaction to this? Well, Libby, I, I would first start off by saying that it's helpful to understand how we got to this point 19 months into the pandemic. And so, as we all remember... Uh, the first waves uh, of the pandemic were characterized by fear and anxiety, but also healthcare shutdowns, right? So hospitals having to reorganize their operating rooms and uh, care being delayed as a result of uh, the reorganization. And so, of course, that had a significant impact on the healthcare sector. And But while all of that was happening, doctors were actually on the front lines, in the emergency rooms, in the ICUs, dealing with this, uh, you know, threatening virus that continues to challenge our sector now. And hopefully, um, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're through hopefully a fourth wave that uh, continues to challenge our system and, and patients generally. And doctors have been dealing with higher demands due to the pandemic backlog. Doctors are continuing to see patients both virtually and in person. In fact, our data at the Ontario Medical Association suggests that 99.6% of physicians are providing both in-person and virtual care. And so we also have to remember, Libby, that um, the Ministry of Health and the CPSO were recommending a, first, a virtual first strategy for the first 18 months. That was because uh, doctors didn't have PPE in their in their uh, in their offices. It's, it's because they had to space out patients to be seen in an environment now because of COVID and distancing and cleaning between uh, patients. And so there was a virtual first strategy. And up until about two or three weeks ago, in fact, the COVID nineteen science table was predicting a significant fourth wave, as we remember. And so that actually, uh, you know, okay, let's let's yeah, I think we all we're all uh, familiar with that. But is this a good yeah. thing telling doctors? Because we've heard from a lot of our callers who say they are having a very hard time getting in with a, a doctor in person. So is it yay or nay, thumbs up or down? Well, Libby, uh, it's, it's neither, meaning we, we have to understand the scope of the problem right now. And so that is where we're at right now. We also understand that things change very, very quickly in the course of the pandemic. Of course, we think about um, care delivered virtually uh, kind of like a medication. And what I mean by that is that there's an appropriate dose that is required, which means that there's an intensity, so the amount, there's a frequency, so how, how often, uh, the duration, so for how long, and then also patient selection. So the type of care that's delivered virtually uh, depends on individual practices. It also different differences in specialty type. For example, Libby, I'm a physiatrist. I'm a rehabilitation doctor. I've seen almost exclusively all of my patients in person because the physical exam in my line of work is very important in making a diagnosis and providing treatment. And so that really depends on the type of care that's provided by a specific type of doctor. And so, yes, we believe that uh, as things normalize or become a uh, new normal, we'll start to see a shift between the, the, the ratio of care that's delivered in person and virtually. Okay. Thanks so much, Dr. Adam Kassam. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. And now let's bring in Dr. Anna Holland, who is a family physician at Prince Edward Medical, and Dr. Jason Profetto, who is a family physician of the Profetto Savateri Family Medicine in Hamilton. Hi there. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank, Thank you. you. So, uh, was this kind of a, a bit of a, a, a kick in the behind from the chief medical officer, Dr. Holland? Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me today, Libby. Um, you know, it it really didn't feel that way to me. I think everyone uh, interprets things differently. I think, you know, as Dr. Kasson said, you know, we really were told to do sort of virtual first. That was the direction at the beginning of the pandemic. And so there was a huge shift when we when we did that. And we've been shifting throughout the pandemic. Again, I, w- I want to say, you know, every practice is different and every, you know, you can imagine in Ontario, the landscape of, you know, being in Toronto or Hamilton, a big city versus being up north. There's There's a lot of differences, different practice types. And I think... Um, you know, for us, we've been shifting to more and more in person as the pandemic has changed. So that's been it hasn't really affected how we work because we were already doing quite a lot of in-person care already. Dr. Profeta, what about in your practice? Yeah, I, I would agree with the remark. So I think for the majority of stuff that we've been doing I, for sure through right now and throughout the p- pandemic has been in person. There has been previously more virtual mixed in with it but a good chunk of what we're doing now is definitely in person and has continued to increase so especially over the last say three six months or um what did you make of it when we learned that say doctors were not keen on seeing children and and leaving messages you know directing them to sick kids emerge um i can take that one sure. if that's okay sure um Yeah, so I I was just, you know, I think there's a lot of complexity that goes into it. I think, you know, I I have to say there's, I think there is some mixed messaging happening. Certainly, you know, we are hearing that there are some physicians who are close to in-person care. I think that's the minority. I've actually had my patients uh, tell me that, you know, because I can't get an in-person appointment with you. And we actually didn't close a single in-person day. We've had an in-person doctor every single day of the pandemic. Um, So I think there has really been some, some mixed messaging. So that's one thing. The other thing that I would like to just point out is that you have to remember that most pediatricians and family doctors actually don't have access to COVID swabs in order to provide quick turnaround um, time. So you can imagine if you're a family doctor, I don't want to talk for pediatricians, but I could extrapolate. If you have a young child, how do you rule out COVID? Um, And that is part of the physical exam. So in our office, we are having to send people to a patient to get the COVID swab sometimes first. Um, before we bring them in office, you know, you have to remember we also have newborns coming to our office. We have pregnant women. We have immunocompromised patients who may be on chemotherapy. So it's really a balance. We have to strike a balance of safety um, for the other patients and also making sure we give access to care. So, so you're asking people to get swabbed. Do they have to do that at their own expense? Oh, no, they're provided at, like, you can go to one of the COVID assessment centers. You just have to book an appointment online. Um, And the issue is that it, you know, they don't generally, the COVID assessment centers, or at least in some locations, they won't provide an, like, a proper exam. They'll only do the swab. Um, And, you know, I would love to be able to offer the COVID swabs in my office if I were given the support to do so. But unfortunately, I'm, I'm not able to do that. Dr. Perfetto, do you require a negative test before you see somebody in your office? Uh, real quick, I, I definitely agree with uh, my, my, my co-physician uh, here in terms of the comments that she's making, 100%. Um, I would say a couple of things. One, we do not require someone to have a COVID negative swab in order to enter our clinic. I think I, I, I understand the merit behind that. I think it would be very, very impractical, and especially with the volume of people that we see across the several doctors in our clinic, it would be very, very difficult to do that. Now, the, the other thing too, though, is that in, in addition to all of the options that are available, and, and just as Dr. Holland is saying, we, we've always had in-person options available at the office. One of the challenges, though, with all of these options is that the messaging that has been sent, and I, I'm not sure I would blame any one public health physician per se, but just the general feel through social media, different forms of media 
is, has been very fearful. So you have to understand, too, that a lot of staff get very concerned when a patient is coughing. They don't know what to do. So even if I'm okay with that occupational risk of seeing perhaps someone that very unlikely has COVID, and I'm going to be seeing them in the office, a lot of the staff can get very concerned. A lot of our ancillary services, our nurses, our physician assistants, they can get very concerned. I would have wished for a little bit more of a positive messaging behind the power of PPE, the power of vaccination, the power of infectious safety protocols within an actual office. Unfortunately, it had a little bit more of a fearful, I think, undertone to it, which really affected the ability of, you know, thousands of offices in the province to be able to provide a variety of different options for in-person care. Now, yesterday, uh, Kieran Moore sent a letter to 45,000 doctors that was signed by some other health officials as well, uh, again, saying uh, that they expect all physicians to now provide in-person care. Dr. Profeto, did you take that as a kind of kick in the butt? No, I don't think so. So I, I, gotta, I have to be really honest. With Dr. Kieran Moore, I, I've been impressed with a lot of his messaging, his tone. I think our, you know, Dr. Nancy Whitmore at the CPSO, her, her general messaging, her undertones, I think, have been very positive and helpful for physicians. So I did not see it as a kick in the butt as much as I saw it as a supportive documentation that I think publicly needed to come from public health and the CPSO just to ensure and, and, and reassure physicians and their their associated offices that it's okay and we need to start doing this and collectively let's move forward in that direction. I think I think from a leadership perspective, the way in which it was delivered was okay. I did not see it as a punitive message at all. And I, I was actually quite happy to see that message go out more more uh, dispersed throughout the province. Uh, I'm going to give the numbers out. We have a few minutes. And uh, one of the reasons I'm asking all these questions is because uh, I have heard we've had, you know, quite a few calls from people who were very upset about this, saying they can't get an in or they couldn't get an in-person appointment. So people um, tell me what you think about this. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. I guess the other side of it is, you know, I think for a lot of things, virtual, a virtual appointment is uh, just peachy. It's easier for the patient too, if a, if a full on in-person appointment isn't necessary. And I guess there is more virtual medicine that's that's here to stay, right, Dr. Holland? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think, you know, there is the convenience factor. And so there definitely are some patients who prefer having a virtual uh, appointment. But for sure, there are many complaints that are patient issues that need to be seen in person. Like, you know, they need a physical exam. And I just wanted to correct something. Our office is not requiring COVID um, swabs for every patient. What we're asking is that as part of the workup, we're asking them to get a COVID swab, which we can't offer um, in person if they have COVID symptoms. So if they are having active um, respiratory concerns or other COVID symptoms. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what about uh, a requirement for vaccination? Is uh, is there anything like that in any doctor's offices that you know of? They're not allowed to, actually. So it's not one of the um, requirements, right? And that would go for um, actually any vaccination, right? Like there are patients who do not want to be vaccinated even pre-COVID. Um, and so that's not a reason to refuse care. Um, for sure, I would provide the care, and, and that's what we're mandated to do. Um, and and obviously, we encourage it, but we're we're there to to counsel and inform. So, Doctor Profeto, are you anticipating that uh, you know what percentage of your visits uh, would you say are going to go back to being uh, in person? I know you've been doing in person all along, but uh, are you going to go back to almost all of them that way? You know, I think probably what's going to happen for us is a shift where we're being more integrative with virtual options. So I, I agree with Dr. Holland. There's, there's actually a lot, or even yourself, Libby, there's a lot of people who it's, it's a quick follow-up for a cholesterol result or to touch base about a medication, and they're in such and such a city or they're working, they're taking a break, they're on their lunch. 
where honestly a five, 10 minute conversation is just so much easier than booking time off work and coming to the office. So in that regard, there's a lot of flexibility that virtual offers. I would estimate we're probably doing something like 70 to 80% in person, and then maybe 20 to 30% virtual. And just, I, I agree with Dr. Holland, that, that, that the, the most challenging situation I think we're seeing right now is an individual who has a cough and fever, especially if perhaps they're not vaccinated against COVID-19. And what does a family doctor do in that scenario? Do you bring them in knowing that there may be a risk of COVID and then you might have staff and other people and other patients exposed? Or should they go to a COVID testing center first? That, that's actually been a very big challenge for myself and for a lot of our colleagues in primary care. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting point. And how did you resolve it? It depends. You know, it, it depends on the scenario. If you really think it's a very low risk of COVID, for example, if there's more allergy symptoms, for example, or if, if, if there's something else happening or if someone's coming from the hospital with a follow-up of pneumonia and they're still coughing, it's different. If you have someone that has a cough and fever and may have been exposed to COVID plus minus a, a vaccination, it probably is wise to ensure that they get swabbed first prior to bringing them in. So it, it really depends on case by case. You have to have a conversation with the patient, with your staff, and use your clinical discretion as appropriate. But the, the big underlying thing is that you, you should not deny care and, and at least provide options to the individual. Dr. Holland, do you have a backlog of uh, patients? I, I know that you were both saying that you have people who've been in the office all the time, but I'm sure you have patients who w- want to see you and not one of the doctors you work with. Uh, mm-hmm. So is there a backlog that you have to get through? Um, you know, for, for us, because we've been open throughout the pandemic and we really strive for continuity of care and I think that's a really really important point um, when you're offering virtual or in person so I would say no because I make sure to take care of my patients like I, I've been doing home visits throughout the pandemic I've been doing um, in-person newborns I've been working in the hospital I've been doing all of those all of those things so really I, I don't have that kind of backlog um, but what I would say is, you know, when I'm seeing sort of virtual care and, and things like that, I think when you have virtual options, and, and this speaks to the convenience that, um, you know, my colleague was talking about and I agree with, it's really important to have that backup of in-person. So if someone has something virtually, they bring up on the phone and you say, you know what, that person needs a physical exam that you yourself can bring them into the office and and bring them in within a reasonable time. Uh, Dr. Profeto, uh, last word to you with this. I I think, uh, so I I agree with these comments. And I think this is, there's a certain level of occupational risk for family doctors in particular, uh, whether it's a pandemic or any other viral type of infectious exposure. And it's so important to be able to balance PPE with vaccination, with ensuring that you offer appropriate options, virtual integration for all people. And you can't really be black and white on this issue. You can't say we're not seeing anybody in person and we're we're only doing virtual stuff. We have to be a little bit more open, a bit more flexible, and then going forward and letting things evolve as appropriate. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Anna Holland and Dr. Jason Perfetto. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. People, remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So if you couldn't get through today or if you have something to add, uh, call back tomorrow. And last Friday, I was hearing from people who said they couldn't get an in-person appointment. We'll see how it goes tomorrow. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
There is word that next week the province will further ease restrictions on venues where proof of vaccination is required. It comes after massive pressure from the restaurant and hospitality industry. They were crying foul after capacity limits were lifted for theaters and arenas very abruptly at the end of last week. But some health authorities are worried that this is happening too soon. So let's go to Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of the province's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Hi, Dr. Uni. Hi. So uh, you think this might be happening a bit too soon, correct? Oh, we will see what happens. You know, we don't know what the timelines will be. What we just need to be aware of here right now is we did a big step, you know, with uh, dropping the capacity limits for arenas, for example. And now we don't know what will be happening. We need, as usual, three weeks roughly from the moment we're doing something until we start to see the impact. Right now, we're really in a honeymoon phase again, which is great for all of us, but uh, we just shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. So I would hope, fingers crossed, that it still takes a moment until the higher risk settings have uh, their capacity limits limits changed, and that's really restaurants and gyms. We know that clearly these venues have a higher risk of transmission associated with them. Okay, so here was their argument. And, you know, when I look at a venue like the Four Seasons Opera House or Kerner Hall, where you sit in the hall, you're masked, you watch a performance, uh, there's no food right in there. I agree that's lower risk. But what, what the hospitality industry and the restaurateurs were saying was, hey, when you're in an arena, uh, you don't have to wear your mask while you're eating. And uh, people are sitting very, very close together and they're screaming and cheering. So um, what do you say to that? I mean, how, are, how is that safe? Well, it's their task, you know, to try to make a case here, but they don't have one. That's really important just to realize this is comparable to, uh, to the situation on a patio, you know. But the problem is when you just think about that on a higher level, think about 20,000 people, you either squeeze these 20,000 people into a sports arena or you squeeze these 20,000 people into in 200 uh, intimate restaurants around the corner. Guess where the ventilation is better. This disease is transmitted in an airborne manner. If the ventilation is good, this helps everybody. It's uh, also it's about the, the, the ventilation part. It's about how consistent people are masking and uh, how long they, you know, if they get a hot dog in a sports arena, they hopefully really will get the hot dog with the mask on, go out again and they sit in their space. And even if there's a sports arena with a, with a roof closed, you know, because it gets colder, the ventilation will still be much better. It's clear, you know, the evidence is overwhelming. You can't compare a sports arena with the restaurant. But the point is also, even with the sports arena, what we're doing right now, we don't know the impact of that yet. It may be that two weeks from now we start to see we need to cycle back and uh, actually just uh, uh, undo some of the decision-making because we start to see exponential growth again. Let's see. Fingers crossed that this is not the case, but we're not through here yet. Yeah, um, th- I guess uh, that, that that message that even with the eating, uh, it's, it's safer than a restaurant, uh, I guess uh, it hasn't gotten through because, again, I mean, you know, personally, if I were sitting right next to somebody who was eating, I wouldn't think that it was very safe. And I did experience that on a plane. You're supposed to be masked. Except when you're sitting to next to two teenage girls who eat the whole way, they're not masked. This is true, but you know, just taking the airplane again, an airplane, if it's not standing and the engines are off, has actually excellent ventilation. And uh, while I agree with you, it's not completely safe potentially, but if this person is sitting next to you, not facing you, but facing just, uh, you know, straight into their direction, you sit next to that, the ventilation is good and the masks are down only because they're just eating something right now and then they're up again. This is still much safer than sitting in a restaurant together, the ventilation is not optimal, the ceiling are low, and the masks are off all the time. It's completely different. Um, so was the scientific advisory table on side with uh, these, this latest easing of restrictions? 
Um, we didn't advise on any of that, but I'm personally, you know, as a scientist, in, in full agreement with the distinction that was made. Distinguish high-risk and lower-risk settings and start to ease restrictions for the lower-risk settings. And I can also see, of course, there is a political pressure there. And as long as we do things stepwise and after each step we wait, hopefully three weeks, we should be good. Okay, but but um, the word is that these restrictions could come off restaurants next week. Yeah, you know, that's probably one of the reasons I'm talking to you. I would like to make sure that we don't get ahead of ourselves and ease things too early. I wouldn't like to be in the premier shoes or in the chief medical officers of health shoes right now. It's challenging for them. And what we just need to be aware of is we're on the right track. Why? Because we're patient. Patient is not a really predominant, a patient is not a predominant uh, human characteristics, but we were patient. We didn't get ahead of ourselves, unlike Alberta, we didn't pretend the pandemic is over. Let's not fall into that trap now because it's still not over. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you anticipate any reverberation, any increase in cases from Thanksgiving? And when would we see that? Again, you know, once we make a mistake, we need to wait at least two weeks, but uh, experience tells more like three weeks now before we really start to see that. So all of that Thanksgiving and the dropping of capacity limits in sports arenas, we will see that roughly around end of the month, not before that. Okay, I'm going to ask you a totally different question now. We just had a travel segment. Uh, I know of lots of snowbirds who are going back to the United States uh, for their uh, winter. Uh, And I've talked to a lot of people who say they want, people over 60, who want to get their third shot there. What would you say to those people? Oh, Look, what we know right now is that we really are doing well with our vaccine protection, but those people who are exposed because they're not only older and have received their second shot perhaps already in February or so, but also live in congregate settings, that's the people who should get their third shot now. That's for sure the case, no? Uh, For people who actually are in lower-risk settings and have received their second shot much later and also with a large interval between the first and the second shot, this is much less urgent. And again, remember... We need also an, enough vaccine doses for the world. So we don't want now just the entire population getting third shot. It's not needed. Once it's needed, we will see that. And then also hopefully proactively just make sure that those who need the shots actually can get them. Okay, yeah, but, but like me. Yeah, what, what I'm saying is I've, I've talked to people, say, who had spaced out AstraZeneca shots. They're going down for the winter. You can get a third shot in a pharmacy there. No, no hassle. Uh, would you say okay. that that's a good idea or a bad idea? I think if, if people just received AstraZeneca 1 and 2 and uh, then it, and have an easy access to a third shot, and that's a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, go for it. Okay. That was the answer I was looking for. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me again. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Right, we're going to take another break, and we are going to talk about another restriction that has a lot of our audience upset that the Chief Medical Officer of Health wants restricted, and that is in-person visits with doctors. Uh, Yesterday, late, he issued a letter saying it's safe to do that, and doctors, please do it. We will drill down on that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. There was great news for snowbirds this week. The U.S.-Canada land border is set to reopen to non-essential travelers who are fully vaccinated sometime in early November. It means that many of them will be able to drive their cars and RVs down to their winter destinations rather than looking for expensive and cumbersome alternatives. But there's still lots of questions. We know that people who received the AstraZeneca shot will be accepted when they fly into the U.S., but it's not clear 
what the rules at the land border are. And what is the U.S. verdict on people who received mixed doses? There are just about 4 million of those people here in Canada. So we have three travel experts. I'd like to welcome Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure, Inc., Richard Smart, CEO and registrar of the Travel Industry Council of Ontario, and Dr. Frederick Dimanche, director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management. Oh, and by the way, we would like to hear from you, and if you have questions, this is the right place. So before we get to it, let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-7. 740 and let's begin with marty hi marty hi how are you fine how are you excellent busy 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 so uh first of all what's your general reaction to this well it's great news we have to accept that because all i've had is calls for months and months and months when will we be able to drive over the border so we have our answer we think we just don't know the day we still do not have an answer on mixed vaccines and i suspect we have the answer on the use of the world health organization drug list so i think that all sounds good and one other quick thing it appears no negative COVID test is going to be required to be presented to go over the land border right but you're still going to need one to to fly it well well this is these two and someone else may be able to answer this these two things have got to get in sync one of these days because right now you didn't have to be fully vaccinated either by air so the az was not here nor there so ultimately when they open the land border are they going to follow the same rules at the air border per se and are they going to request now no negative covid test but show proof of being fully vaccinated that's where we're at that's where we're at, and we're waiting for the answers. Uh, let's bring in Richard Smart. Hello, Richard. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Uh, so still, are there pitfalls that people have to be worried about? Uh, well, first of all, let me thank you, Libby, for having me back on today. It's always great to be on uh, on with you. A pleasure. Um, I'm, uh, I'm in agreement with uh, with Marty. We're, uh, we're very pleased to see the borders uh, finally reopening. I guess I would use the words cautiously optimistic and the other analogy that the devil's in the detail. Um, we've yet to uh, re- receive the, the detailed uh, requirements and what the rules and protocols are from Homeland Security. Uh, so aside from the date, um, the sort of uh, document, if, if there's any special documentation requirement um, around the, the, the vaccination status, are they going to accept the QR codes as a, as a paper, exactly what that's going to look like. But hey, I mean, we, we know the travel sector as a whole has been devastated these last 18 or 19 months. So this is great news for uh, consumers and, and business travelers. Uh, we would just like to see a little bit more detail behind uh, what, what the rules and protocols are, including the, the COVID testing uh, coming back into the country. Uh, yeah, uh, well, that's on, that's on, that's on our end. Uh, and uh, you mentioned the QR codes, and I guess we are here in Ontario supposed to get our QR codes instead of our little pieces of paper at the end of this month. But uh, Dr. Dimanche, do you foresee a hassle that, you know, Canadians have uh, 10 or 12 different kinds of proof of vaccination? It's definitely going to be a barrier to travel, you know, the lack of consistency, not just internationally, but also across the country and across the provinces. So um, I, I would certainly recommend the federal government to, to think about this and to work towards a solution that would fit every single Canadian traveler in the same way. That would be so helpful in the same way the EU has been able to do it. There is no reason why Canada would not be able to do that. Well, the, the EU did it uh, months and months ago. Uh, Canada, I mean, didn't, didn't Dominic LeBlanc just say that it's going to be a long time before the federal government has its act together on that note? It's, it, yes, they, they have said it would be a long time. And to me, that's really puzzling because it's not like this is a brand new thing. You know, that's something that should have been planned a, a long time ago. As you said, the European put this into place in June already. And, you know, I, I'm wondering why we haven't learned from that or, or planned for this earlier. Uh, You know, I'm wondering, Marty, because sometimes when you are crossing the border, it kind of just depends on who you get. You can get, uh, you know, an easygoing uh, border uh, guard or um, an agent or or somebody who's going to hassle you 
Uh, it almost seems like for the fun of it. Do you- no doubt. You don't know what you're getting. And that was part of the reason why I think the U.S. was hesitant to open up the land border. They enjoyed the airlines being the gatekeeper of allowing people in or not allowing them in. It wasn't on their shoulders or their, or their border officials. So that was one thought as to why this has taken so long. But one other note I would make, I'm not even sure you've got to show a QR code or anything at that land border crossing. Evidently, they're talking about an attestation that basically I have been double vaccinated. You could be asked to show proof, but this is what's going to be interesting. If that's all you're doing is saying I was double vaccinated and you don't have to show a negative COVID test, we should move through pretty quick in that respect. Wow, that's almost scary. I don't think our uh, our officials would be keen to uh, reciprocate on that note. I hope not. The other way around, it's going to be a nightmare for the border shopper who on Thanksgiving U.S. wants to go over for five hours. And if it still is what it is, Canada is requesting a PCR test to return back. I would love to know how a five-hour trip with a family of five, they're going to justify getting a PCR test at $150 or $300 if you want results in 15 minutes and come back into the country the same day. Well, nobody's going to do that. And it might be good for our retailers because people aren't going to go and cross-border shop. I think so. And Libby, if I could, if I could add, add on to what uh, Marty is saying, um, consumer confidence is, is arguably at, at an all-time low with respect to travel for, for obvious reasons. And although this is, uh, this is positive news, um, the type of travel that takes place, are, you know, are travelers going over for, for, uh, for shopping for the afternoon? Are they going for a weekend stay? Are they going for that long-awaited visit with, uh, with family and friends? And, and depending on the type of travel that's taken place, that, it's so important that consumers can regain their confidence and that the only way they're going to to attain that is through understanding the details the requirements the documentation and at tico we're we're all about consumer protection and what we're missing are what what are those rules and protocols so that when travelers do cross the border they can do so with confidence and that's that's what's really lacking in the system right now can somebody remind me uh as of what date the americans are going to require proof of vaccination to fly in that that should go hand in hand with the land border opening i would think and no date has been picked yet sometime in november okay right Right. because this is uh, just uh, totally uh personal i've got to take some holiday I'd like to go to New York City, but I don't want to go until you need proof of vaccination to get in. That's just me. Uh, Let us take a couple of calls. We've got Horst in Toronto. Hello, Horst. Hi there, Libby. My question is, I have or had um, an enhanced driver's license. I traveled across the border quite often using this. I didn't need a passport. Now, this is no longer... um, in bulk, you have to get a regular driver's license. And I just wonder what I have to do now as far as getting across the border is concerned. I think you need a passport. Am I right or am I wrong? Who wants to take that? Well, you, 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 de- you definitely need the, uh, the, the passport, is, is my understanding, uh, f- uh, for, the, for uh, this gentleman. Um, depending on, on how long your stay is going to be, sir, I would, I would also suggest that, uh, um, you know, doing, doing the research, uh, checking the documentation requirements, talking to, uh, in, in our case, we always recommend travelers to talk to their, their travel advisor, their travel agent, who've got a, an understanding of the entry and reentry requirements. Um, but uh, to, to my knowledge, the, uh, the the passport is the is the key the key requirement coming back in. Yeah, uh, it's been years Nexus? since. Uh, if I were to get Nexus. Does that do anything for me? Um, that'll get you through a line faster. You still need a passport. Still need to get a passport. Well, I guess I better check that with Nexus, and then I'll take it from there. Oh. I, I did this on a monthly basis back before the uh, COVID thing, and. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to doing that, just driving my car across the Niagara Falls border. Okay, well, good luck to you. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay. Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how you doing? Fine. Okay, so my situation is I need to get a passport, and I've kind of been waiting to, you know, see what's going on with one that's list vaccinations and stuff like that. So I'm not sure what to be doing at this point. Should I be going ahead and getting one or should I be waiting? 
the passport isn't going to list your vaccinations. That's uh, I think the, it used to a long time ago. But and I don't know what uh, the backlog of getting a passport actually is. Um, does anybody on the panel have any insight into that? I only know this much, that nexuses that have expired is nightmarish to try to get that reinstated again. So I'm assuming passport might be similar. But right now, if your nexus has expired, you can't even get set up an appointment yet to go get it reissued. So that's problematic for sure. Right. Yeah, but the, the only other suggestion I could make um, uh, for your caller, Libby, is there, there's usually an expedited process to, to obtain a passport quickly. It, it costs a bit more to do that, but when you call your local passport office, I would, uh, I would just uh, inquire about uh, how you can expedite that if it's important to get that sooner than later. I, I'm laughing when you say call your local passport office. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, there have been a number of occasions that I have got a passport really quickly. And, you know, here's another thing. Uh, the last time I got my passport, I got a 10-year passport. Uh, and because it's a hassle and it gets more and more expensive. So, uh, Daryl, I would get on that right away, to, you know, because, I'd, again, all, a lot of these government functions, uh, they're just kind of not happening or not happening on any kind of reasonable basis. Right. Okay. Well, I, I am a dual citizen, uh, oh. American and Canadian. Should I be trying to get an American passport? You don't have any passport? No, I haven't traveled in a long time. Okay, well, um, uh, you should have both of them. <laughs> but I would imagine you want to go into the States using your American ID as opposed to your Canadian ID. I don't know. Okay. Well, Daryl, when you've... In terms of traveling with, you know, like, are they not going to be putting something to do with the vaccination into a passport? Nope. 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 That's okay. just a matter of speaking. Is, yeah, it's going to be something on your phone. Daryl, thanks for your call. Okay. Be well, everyone. Bye-bye. I guess that was taking it a bit literally. Just because we call it a vaccine passport, it's not a passport. All right. Um, so there's a lot of things to consider here. Interesting what you said about Nexus, that, that those things are hard to get. Uh, I remember a little further back in the pandemic, trying to get a passport was not very easy. Uh, Marty, what are you telling your clients about all of that kind of stuff? Well, you know, the majority of them that are going down to the USA, they're just thrilled again. We talked about the land border opening up. We're just saying that we got to wait for a couple things, the mixed vaccine status, and then whether they're going to accept the AZ, the COVID Shield version. I'm getting the feeling that has been accepted. But you know what's strange about this whole thing is why they aren't announcing it. Like, why aren't they saying it's November 10th? Why aren't, I'm just taking that date. Why aren't they saying all these six following vaccines will be covered? And why are they not saying we will accept mixed vaccines? I'm just not sure the rollout and why all the delays and hesitancy. Well, my understanding is that the news came out because one of the senators, I think it was Chuck Schumer, mm -hmm. uh, leaked it. It wasn't wasn't an official announcement. So, yeah. Um, well, then, then they said Biden was going to talk yesterday. Well, he talked about anything but travel yesterday in his, in his speech. So I have no idea. Dr. Dimash, I mean, you know, the snowbirds are crucial to the economies down south. Yes, it's crucial. I would, I would even suggest that, uh, you know, reopening the border is more important for the Canadian economy than it is from the, for the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy has been doing quite well, uh, you know, uh, for a few months now, and especially with respect to travel. Domestic travel is back to what it was, you know, probably 80 to 90 percent of what it was in 2019. We are not there yet in Canada. Even uh, the Canadians are, are hesitant to travel within the country. So um, from a, a travel and tourism perspective, the, the service providers, the professionals who work in hospitality and tourism do need the American travelers. And, um, you know, the, the earlier uh, this happens, the better it's going to be. We've lost already two summer seasons. Um, keep in mind that the summer is usually the season when people make money uh, and, and uh, make some reserves ahead of the winter. Uh, we've lost two summer seasons. So it's, it's really critical for, for Canadian businesses to, um, to see the American travelers back. 
Uh, Marty, what kind of insurance do people need and how is it uh, maybe over and above what they would normally get? Yeah. So the best news that actually I've had in the last couple of weeks is that the insurance companies, for the most part, have now told you that they think the risk is very low. So, in fact, when you purchase your normal travel insurance, you no longer need the COVID rider. You no longer have a cap on the amount covered if you should have COVID as long as you are double vaccinated. Wonderful incentive for some who aren't vaccinated to get vaccinated. But that's the key. If the insurers themselves are not putting a cap on extra a premium on it, what's that say to you? They're saying, we don't think you're going to end up in an ICU unit on a ventilator. So bottom line, regular travel insurance now treats COVID as any other unexpected medical emergency. Any other caveats with insurance for people? Uh, What if they have to come back early or anything like that? Great, great question. The only caveat that still is out there is from a trip cancellation interruption perspective. So cancellation up to the date you're supposed to go or interruption, you're there and you have to come back or can't come back because you tested positive on a COVID test. That's still an area that's, that's gray and we got to address that. Right now, COVID is a known cause. So to cancel your trip and get reimbursed because the border closed down or I just I'm too afraid to fly or I think the whole world's you know in a bad state not going to cover you so that's hesitancy big time for clients booking big trips next summer and putting down large deposits yeah and Libby if I if I could pick up on what Marty and the doctor said um, travel and tourism in, in the in the province of Ontario is still off 80, 80 to 90 percent and consumer confidence is low so this notion of the consumer being fully informed when they do travel, and, and we do know that we have a lot of snowbirds in the province heading south uh, for the winter. It's so critical that they be informed, and we always recommend, particularly for extended stays, you know, work with your travel advisor, your travel expert, your 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 insurance uh, uh, professional. Be fully informed when you go down, and I think there has been a tendency over time to rely on my credit card insurance or my group plan insurance if I'm with an employer with a plan. Um, we're we're uh, we're very uh, careful to advise consumers. Just uh, you need to sit down and get the facts and and be fully informed on that. And by the way, with with snowbirds largely going down to to Florida and, and other southern states, understand what the local conditions are around new cases and hospital, uh, hospitalizations and ICU uh, units. We know that it varies greatly from state to state. So again, working with a travel advisor, they, they can help you with that, that sort of information. The key is just make sure you ask lots of questions, be informed. Uh, and when it comes to insurance, uh, you know, TECO, it's required that travel advisors um, advise consumers of, of the, um, the, the need uh, for travel insurance. But at the end of the day, it's, it's up to the consumer on whether they purchase it or not. But we certainly recommend it. What about travel to Europe? We've been talking about travel to the States, uh, travel to a warm destination. Uh, but what about travel to Europe? Uh, Dr. Dimanche, are, are people ready for that? I don't know if the Canadians are ready for that. I know that little by little flights are reopening. Um, Aer Lingus, for example, is flying to Ireland right now, where France has been, uh, you know, flying. KLM has been flying. Lufthansa is flying. So, and Canada, of course, is flying as well. So there is an increasing number of flights to European destinations. <clears throat> Europe, uh, as a reminder, has been open to uh, Canadian and American travelers since June. And, um, you know, the, the tendency, the trend is, definitely positive there is you know increasing uh, increasing movement on those uh, on, on those airlines so that being said um, the, the Canadians are still very hesitant uh, to to travel and, and we see that in travel intentions uh, travel intentions by Europeans or Americans maybe 80 um, percent maybe uh, of, of the population ready to travel again whereas it may only be 50 percent for Canadians so Things are moving ahead, but slowly for Canadian travelers. What about uh, the Caribbean or Mexico? Are people ready to go back there? Richard, do you have a sense? Sure. I, I think that, uh, similar to what the doctor said, there, there is certainly the desire to travel to, to, the, uh, to, to the islands, and, and uh, each island is... Uh, done a lot to prepare um, for for visitors coming back in the, the safety protocols that they have in place, the health and sanitization rules that they have. Uh, we're, we're we're quite um, impressed by their their readiness for you know for uh, receiving visitors. But again, it it differs from island to, to island. 
Um, and uh, this is where, particularly when you're traveling outside the continent, you know, working with that travel advisor and being as informed as you possibly can before you make that purchase uh, decision. Um, I think Eileen Davila, the, the, the medical officer in Toronto, put it well. We, we need to differentiate between wanting to travel and needing to travel. And although I, a lot of us uh, feel that need because it's been so long, I would just we're, we're cautiously optimistic that the, the conditions are, are, are certainly better than they ever have been. But, but uh, it's so important to make sure that the, the traveler is informed and, and, check, and check those local conditions to make sure that uh, they're, they're, in fact, ready for travelers. Uh, Marty, uh, what about snowbirds who usually go to Mexico? You know, there, there are some towns there that are full of Canadians. Are, are they ready to go back? Yeah, from what I can see, there's plenty of um, my clientele that are pursuing and going ahead with Mexico. Of course, the land border didn't mean much to them from a driving perspective, but they all have trips planned at this point. And they were the first ones to come back when those flights were all uh, uh, declined or they were going to stop flying to the sun destination. So they are going back again this year and they have faith. And uh, I just think that federal vaccine passport has to come out. That will at least unify us all with one document that countries will recognize and accept. Right. But um, <laughs> I think they actually said it's not it's not coming back on time. Yeah, it's in the mail right now. I have no idea. The other thing just quickly they have to do is we're still under a level three travel advisory avo- asking us to avoid non-essential travel. Well, you're opening the land border. You're saying go travel. So, like, that's got to be lifted. The level four on cruise ships, the whole other story. When are they going to lift that one? You can't even get travel insurance now to cover you for COVID on a cruise ship because there's a level four travel advisory. Yeah, I think some people are starting to book cruises anyway. They are, but they're going to be under a rude awakening, A, if they don't accept mixed vaccines, which we don't know yet. And also, I can't sell them travel insurance that will cover them for COVID in the event that they're on that ship and come down with COVID. Yeah, so that's a big caution. I know lots of people who love cruising. That's for sure. Okay, uh, we are beginning to run out of time, so uh, let's go around the virtual table. Dr. Dimash, what would you like to leave us with on this? Uh, just a reminder for the callers, there seemed to be some confusion earlier to, uh, so that they know that to cross the border back and forth, they do need a passport to go into the U.S. and also to come back into Canada. So that's important information. And also, I wanted to reiterate the fact, um, as um, you know, my colleague just said, there is still a travel warning in effect. And until that travel warning is in effect, I think it will hamper uh, a Canadian travel confidence to, to travel within the country, but also abroad, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Richard? Thanks, Libby. We all want to travel again. Um, I, would, I would just recommend um, consumers be, be cautious, do your research. If it's for an extended stay, work with a registered travel advisor and, and uh, get as much information as one can get, depending on the destination you're going to, um, and, and just uh, tra- travel safe. And Marty, last word to you. Yeah, as you know, last year I was a proponent for no travel, even though that was my business. So that was sort of the uh, claim to fame. But I must say this year, I'm confident in telling people, if you are double vaccinated, if you social distance, if you still dine outside, things like that, you still have to be careful. But I'm much more confident that travel is in the cards for many of them this year. Okay, well, uh, good news all around so far, and we wait to hear about those details in the meantime. Thank you so much, Dr. Frederick Dimanche, Martin Firestone, and Richard Smart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Have you. a good afternoon, Libby. Thank you. Take care. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Peter Uni. We have learned that uh, some of the remaining restrictions on capacity are going to be lifted next week. Is that a good idea when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.